Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and we are living in pandemic times. As a result of that, um, I have started a project where we get to hear from other queerly bodied folks about what it feels like and what they have been learning um, about living in a queer body during pandemic times. So there are several um, episodes that have already been released. You should check them out. They're, I'm calling them dispatches. So there's gonna be dispatches released um, every week or so. Um, they are it's a collection of voices, some past podcast guests, some aspirational podcast guests, some folks that just um, inspire me and who I'm interested in hearing from. I hope that those um, dispatches are helpful in some way. Um, you can also submit a voice memo to me, um, a minute long voice memo of your experience. Um, to my email, livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com, or you can DM me about um, the process. But I would love to hear from you, and I think a lot of people want to hear from one another, so let's share our experiences. Um, in the spirit of sharing experiences, very deep experiences, I have a real pleasure of introducing my podcast guest who I spoke with only a few days ago. So this interview, unlike some of my other interviews, is really of the moment. Um, and I'm gonna kind of let it speak for itself. I just wanna do a quick shout out to Anna Stern, who's a psychotherapist in the Boston area, who is, um, credited with introducing me, introducing me to the work of Susan Raffo, and I am greatly appreciative of that. Um, so Susan Raffo is a queer body worker with ancestry in both the colonized and the colonizer. She has studied craniosacral therapy through the Upledger Institute, the Milne Institute, and with body intelligence. She is also informed by global somatics, a practice that emerged out of body-mind centering, and by a range of nervous system integration models. For the last 16 years, she has focused her work on the connection between what happens in systems and communities with what happens within individual bodies, both through work with the U.S. Social Forum Movement, as well as most recently through the People's Movement Center. Based in Minneapolis and from Cleveland, Ohio, Susan happily lives with her partner, Rocky, and their daughter, Luca. To find out more about her work, you can visit susanraffo.com. And I really hope everyone is taking care of yourselves as best you can and one another. Susan, thank you yeah. so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. My pleasure. And what, of course, I was just saying offline and I'll say again mm -hmm. is massive gratitude to you for actually making this available, particularly at this moment. I think we're all looking for touch points. Yes, I know. That's I mean, I certainly am, too. Um, and that's part of why I'm doing this. Um, so. I usually start out my interviews with a question, and I think we'll probably you know, circle back to this or circle around this question, um, throughout our conversation, but I'd like to hear a little bit about how you first remember kind of learning about being in a body or what messages you received early on about what that meant. It's such a good question. And so the first learning I had that I had a body happened after I died when I was seven. Mm -hmm. um, and my family was in a car accident. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a lot of just mess. Um, and in it, I, I died and came back. And so that experience is the first mm -hmm. acutely physical experience yeah. that I remember that was that mix of fear, but also gloriousness. It's also the first time I ever felt this thing that we would call spirit, a sense of connection to something mm -hmm. that is greater than dailiness. And so the two became entwined for me. Yeah. And that experience yeah. ha then shaped whatever learning happened later, because before that, I'm sure I was learning all the things that we learn just by being conditioned within a family and a culture, but they were not direct. I don't have memory of being told things. Right. I, so the first seven years, you know, this is when I was just before I turned seven. So my first six years were just to be coming within my family um, and becoming within a body that was white, within an urban context, within a family that was um, working class and upwardly mobile with it, um, with young parents who really wanted me. I was a firstborn child. So all of those things, and I was born into a body that was identified as girl and that I had no sense of dissonance in relationship to that growing up. Mm -hmm. And all of, but those were just the becomingness. And then that, that, that physical and spiritual acuteness. Yeah that happened at six just shaped everything after. And then everything after was because my, um, the trajectory of my family was completely broken. Mm -hmm. After that, it was that bodies are fragile and vulnerable and need to be protected. And, um, and at the same time being raised by, uh, a parent who, uh, whose body was deeply impacted by the car accident, mm. um, refused to identify as being somebody living with a disability, but with somebody living with a disability, is that at the same time, this weakness, this fragility, this brokenness is something that you hide um, mm -hmm. and protect. And so that's what I was learning in many, many ways, but that, oh, that, that, that deeply physical experience of both pain and spirit at six. Like that's been this, this thing that was bigger, stronger, or sat alongside those messages. So when it was time to actually, you know, come into adulthood and start to pay attention to my life and to 
unpack and raise questions. Those two things were always there at the same time. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And I, you know, it just, it makes me, it, it makes me think about certainly the current moment we're in, but also that idea of the kind of like the dialectic uh, or the, the multiplicity of the ways that you experience your body in such a complicated way. And, and the, it sounds like in the bodies of people around you, you know, um, at such an early age that, that there is both this kind of fragility, but also spirit and um, survival. And it, it sounds like a lot for a seven-year-old to, um, to navigate, but it also sounds like that, that it's been such an enduring, um, part of your, your life and your sense of self, um, that it hasn't, that, that kind of complexity of relating to the body hasn't shifted much, um, <laughs> in a way. What a gift reflection you just gave me. Mm. I'm going to have to be like chewing on that for a little bit. I've mm. never thought about it in the way you just said. So thank you mm. for that gift. Sure. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> maybe it resonates. Maybe it doesn't. Um, no, it does. It, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the reason I, I mentioned also just this idea of this story and, and it's, it's a really difficult story and I'm, and I am very sorry that you experienced that. And we, as you know, people in this current time get to have the privilege of, of, you know, being able to access the wisdom that you, you gained from that experience. And I think that's a lot of what I am interested in, in terms of this podcast, um, mm. is thinking about, you know, in my own experience and the experience of other bodies, you know, what, what do our bodies know? Um, today I was, um, you know, as most days, uh, I guess, which is maybe helpful and maybe not, um, we'll see, but I was on Instagram and someone had, had posted, you know, something that said, um, that gut feelings are guardian angels and, um, I was wondering, I was think. it made me think about this kind of role of, um, listening to our bodies, um, or listening to what our bodies know at a time when, um, we're receiving a lot of messaging, a lot of different messaging, but a lot of messaging about, um, kind of the problematic nature of the fragility of our bodies or, you know, that we're subject to contagion or that we, um, do need to stay away from one another or that certain bodies, certain, the fragility of certain bodies, you know, matters more than others and, and all of that. And I guess that's a, those are pretty overwhelming messages, but when it comes to how, we are all dealing with, um, this global pandemic, um, is one way of putting it. Um, I think I've been struck in my conversations with others about how much we are not listening to our bodies are sort of questioning. And maybe part of it is because of this sort of 
looming danger of, um, becoming sick that, um, there's a, a kind of dissociation from the body. Um, but I, I guess I'd like to hear some of your thoughts around, you know, what for you and maybe, you know, when you're with the folks that you work with or have been working with, what for you feels important for, for you to pay attention to um, in your body right now as a kind of guiding force um, in, in terms of your actions or, you know, how you're relating emotionally um, to the world? Such a good, good question, story, series of questions, complexities. Just going to listen for a second. You know, so, so much of my work is, um, I think about how I am right now, what I'm feeling for is the end of the piece of string for the story that I want to tell right now. That's connected to the complexity you just laid mm -hmm. out. And I'm feeling all of the different things that are embedded in what you just said. Mm -hmm. And I want to start with this place where it's like, right. Our, our, <laughs> like wisdom is about discernment, being able in a present moment to experience without, uh, hiding from or reshaping or minimizing whatever is happening in this present moment. And I think that like we're in a, I get with body-based stuff. And I know that uh, from what I know of your work, that I know that I'm linking arms with you when I say this. Mm. Um, so this is not a pushback. This is just an, a, another layer of reflection is that with the body and the we, it gets really hard, right? Which is so much of my writing is all about the collective body. And I keep using we, and, um, mm -hmm. and each time I'm doing it and like doing it with so much caution, because there are two things that are like true at exactly the same time. For those of us who've been raised multiple generations within this thing called the United States, mm -hmm. we have been raised within a massive collective trauma that says that we need to uh, turn ourselves into an object. And either that object is one that is under attack or is an object that needs to be protected and asserted. And then within there, we, many of us are multiple objects, depending on the rooms that we're in. And that is uh, an element of U.S. normal. But what's embedded in that is so deeply different, again, as we all know, based on somebody's race, class, gender, perception of all of those things. Yeah. Um, and so there's that piece. Because of that, it is deeply important, like massively important in the work for um, honoring, recognizing, and lifting up our individual and collective dignity and sovereignty to fight to come back into the middle of our own lives. Um, and that is, um, again, the, the middle of our individual lives and the middle of our collective lives. And by collective lives, I mean kin networks, I mean culture, I mean neighborhoods, but to be in the middle with what is here mm. and that the place that we experience life is we experience it through our body, right? Emotions are a function of the hormones, our nervous systems exist within and our nervous systems are how we respond to and perceive all of the information that is coming in and that is within our bodies. So this is where we experience our life, both pleasure and pain. It is essential. Like it is so necessary. It's the most unbelievable, mind-blowing thing that when we are first born, the first thing that starts happening, depending again about 
what our home is like, who our kin are, who our kin are how we are held and supported. Um, but there's some element of a beginning of forgetting the things that we are just born knowing fully, how to cry, how to rage, how to feel pleasure, and how to communicate those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is so true, and it is sacred and massive. And then at the same time, our bodies hold histories. And so that means that what our bodies might be showing us in any single moment might or might not be about what's actually happening outside of us right now Mm -hmm. is that sometimes it's our perception of what's happening right now based on what's unfinished within. And so there is right now, and I've certainly contributed to it. And some of that has been a part of my own healing, um, almost like a swing of the pendulum from deny all things related to bodies to every information that comes out of the body needs to be lifted up as guardian angel. And I'm like the, 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 the practice is discernment, right? In this moment is what's coming up in me about right now? Or is it, and is it about things that are unfinished within me? And I think, you know, God, the Western separation of shit is such a pain in the ass because I was about to say, it's like why this is a spiritual practice, but I'm like, it's a physical practice. It's a spiritual practice. It's a mental practice. It's a political practice. It's like all the same thing that this um, dominant culture has separated into parts. Um, and then, you know, depending on the community we're talking with, some things get minimized and other things get lifted. Um, and it's all just how is life experiencing itself in the moment? How am I experiencing life? How are we experiencing life? Um, what does fear feel like? Is there a contraction? Is there an expansion? Um, and then seeing what that means. So I don't know if that answered what you're asking, but it's what just came alive in me with your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I really, that that discerning is very much something that I have been kind of in my individual psychotherapy practice really finding to be critical um, mm-hmm. with, with the patients that I work with just in terms of, and I think I was saying some of this to you earlier, but in terms of, even the, the kind of day by day, week by week, you know, awareness around what gets sparked in us, what gets agitated, what Mm. makes us feel tired, what, you know, what is that? Maybe not what, maybe the, what isn't the question, but this idea of what is unfinished in me, is it, is it a legacy of that? I know you've, you know, you've written about, and I've really been you know, interested in, in the way that you've written about this idea of, um, within the collective and also individually, you know, the way intergenerational trauma kind of resides within us and is passed through generations, um, in our bodies and Mm -hmm. that part of the discerning is, you know, trying to understand how much, um, these kind of systems we have grown up in. And if we live in the United States, that's what, you know, it, it is these systems where, you know, historically ongoing marginalized groups of people who are, whose bodies and spirits and all of that are discarded or deemed unworthy of care. Mm -hmm. Um, Vulnerability is not 
considered to be important. I guess I'm just, you know, that is one aspect of the kind of what is residing in our bodies right now. And I think, um, or always, um, and this, what is rising to maybe more of a collective awareness, although there are a lot of people who have been working around these issues and, you know, um, prison abolition and, um, disability justice communities, they're, they're saying, yes, you know, we, (laughs) we have been doing this for a long time and this global pandemic or, you know, maybe the virus is, uh, there, there are lots of ways to phrase it. I, I hesitate to say, you know, it is a global pandemic. Um, it is a health crisis. It also is a crisis of our, you know, our system, our capitalist system, our, you know, systems of care. So I don't, I don't want to just kind of assert that, but maybe you could say a little bit more, um, mm-hmm. about, you know, what it means to kind of do this discerning, mm. um, parsing out, you know, kind of in some ways parsing out what is unfinished within Mm. me and also what is, um, you know, is right outside my door and frightening me or, you know, angering me about the current state of affairs and, and why that discerning is important. Yeah. So important, you know, and immediately what wells up in me is just so much tenderness as the first step, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like so much tenderness because, because there's a bunch of things I'll say and lay out right next to each other, but my tenderness is just for each person who is in their life, including myself, who is seeking, like in the deepest sense, not just a feeling, but a knowing and a practice of of shared liberation mm-hmm. and tenderness for how much we don't know tenderness for those who do know and have watched their beloveds in prison or harmed because they refuse to forget yeah and just tenderness right and i'm like there's just a lot of things that are true that we set it's like, you know, we sit on the ground and we just look at them. And so some of the healing work is to be able to, 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 to look at them and not, um, you know, and that's that there, <laughs> there have never not been collective practices of safety and wellness mm-hmm. um, for all kinds of reasons, for reasons of physical, mental, emotional survival, for reasons of cultural practice. For reasons of um, not having access to state or private systems of care, and so therefore yeah. needing to create other forms of care. Mm-hmm. For reasons of resisting, you know, I, I, I think just this is just one example. I think of how often I, mean, I think of things like the practice of midwifery, which was and 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 much of herbal medicine was kept alive within Black communities because Black communities did not have access to uh, state and private care systems. They were kept alive because they were cultural, and then they were, quote-unquote, rediscovered by white practitioners in the 60s and 70s who were rightfully resisting the dehumanization of some elements of state and private care, but then along the way forgot what it actually meant to be in right relationship with 
um, with the learning and the remembering. So I just think that we just, you know, like that is just true. And it is just true that each of us come from families that have either been impacted or creating or standing by as bystanders and not doing anything in relationship to all these things. It is just true. Mm -hmm. You know, it is just true that some of us have grown up where since we were small, we have always seen people we love die um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, And there's an intimacy with death where you don't get to assume or to feel entitled to your own life. Mm. Um, And that that's not true for everyone right now. And that there are others for whom, because the, the U S has had a privatization of death and a separation of, um, a, uh, a cultural separation of suffering. Uh, that's a complicated thing to say. So I'm actually going to not go there because it would take too many words to break that down. But there are many for whom living amongst dying is not been something that they were raised with or practiced. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's some amount of race, class and gender, um, patterns in relationship to this, but they're not absolute, you know? And so, and, and, and what it means to live in unknowing, which is this moment that we are in. I mean, this is a great unknowing and it is brand new for some of us and not new at all for others. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what just comes up is tenderness and it's the place where, I mean, and you know this, hello practitioner, it's like when we talk about healing, healing is so specific and concrete. It is, you know, healing is not something we can go abstract around. It is about who, you know, if it's an individual or it's a group, who's in the room right now? What is coming up in you right now? Are you afraid? Feel into that fear. Is that a familiar fear right now? Is it different? Have you never felt this before? How is it shaping you in this second, you know, and to work through and to sort of watch and support somebody either individually or again in a group to go through that collective weaving and unweaving into something that is new, which might be a big new, it might be a, just the ability to suddenly sleep again after not being able to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that's happening right now. And it's happening at the same time as, you know, there's, um, a movement towards, which is lovely, setting up mutual aid, collective care, places where there haven't been before, or deepening them with all of the eye roll for those who've been like, God damn it, we've been trying to get space to do this forever. And y'all keep telling us, you know, not giving us the resources to do that. Disability right. justice, folks who are living in poverty, all those things. Like they're all true in this moment. And there are things that are unrolling. And so it's you know, maybe it gets back to, again, um, you know, setting up mutual care can, um, networks or collective care networks is really about setting up collective nervous systems, you know, mm. systems for being able to interpret what's happening in at any given moment, to name it, define it, and then to identify a need or an action as a result of it. And so the collective nervous systems that we're setting up through collective care, through mutual aid, they are the nervous systems of who we are right now, right? So some of them are coming out as this really rapid action-based focus. Like, you know, and I keep wanting to be like, yes, we need this. And now notice if you're doing this to override the fact that you're terrified, like be terrified and set this up. It's okay. Right, right. And it also is caring. You know, the other piece I'll say is um, (laughs) this morning I was reading about the Elizabethan poor laws that were 
established in 1601, which is the first time. And so it deeply impacted how the U.S. exists because it was the first time that the um, uh, concept of taxation for the public good happened. So it was the first time a state said, um, we're going to take some of the extra money that people have to make sure that we set up some sort of system for those who are suffering. Um, but it also set up this idea in law from the beginning of the deserving and undeserving poor. So when somebody has a need or a vulnerability, who deserves what kind of care and who is not? And they really broke it down where the deserving are like orphans and widows and uh, people who had an accident that prevents them from being able to do farm labor and undeserving as sexually licentious drunkards, um, people who are crazy and people who've fallen out of the church, you know? And so that same pattern is in anybody who's been in the U S for over three generations has been in some way conditioned to that. Even if your lineage is in no way in relationship to Britain, let alone Europe, it's that concept has been impacting all of our bodies and we're shaped by it. And so it's sitting right now. So as we're setting up collective care networks and mutual aid, like tenderness, 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 not shame, not, you know, call out, just tenderness. Um, and it's that pause, right? That moment of taking a breath to say, how are those systems shaping even how I'm dreaming revolution right now? Because it is, because it is. Yeah, it, I, I really appreciate that framing of things and, and I guess I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how, what you were saying earlier, how a kind of living alongside or with a, an awareness or an intimacy around death is kind of part of what is feeling new for some people right now or seeming like it's new. Um, maybe, maybe it's not, but it, it, it's a new awareness for some people and for some individuals and communities that is not the case, but I just, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about how, um, kind of living alongside death in its various forms and inevitabilities and also tragic loss, you know, how that, how you've been thinking about that lately and what you're noticing maybe um, in the world around you about how folks are are responding to that. You know, it's so interesting because you and I checked in on this a little bit through email before, Mm -hmm. and it is something I've been really sitting with. And it's so interesting how in this moment, as you ask the question, what's welling up in me is how much I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which feels really like, oh, hi, you. Yeah, that's also really, really true. It's like the nature of, you know, a podcast is, is like we're talking, we're thinking out loud and that's what's necessary. And it's just like so inconvenient for the truth of that to get so big in me right now, <laughs> you know, but it is, it's like, you know, I, I, what it, what I've been thinking about is, um, That one of the things that we know that trauma does to, there's a lot of things trauma does to the nervous system. And I'm going to, you know, I also want to have a word about trauma for a second is that um, my assumption is that 
everybody who's listening to this mm-hmm. has experienced and is experiencing some form of complex trauma. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that makes any of us special about that. Yeah. And some of those traumas are held up and supported and used as weapons by systems in order and, uh, and is um, one of the tools of state surveillance in order to control some bodies for sure. Yes. Some forms of violence are, didn't end. They're still being enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there are some forms of trauma that are largely invisible because of how deeply they are aligned with dominant culture. And one of my teachers calls it matrix trauma, is people who are raised within a family that is perceived as normative by the dominant culture, and yet still basic attachment, basic care is never, ever um, grounded in the way as an infant and a young person needs. Mm -hmm. And so there is a matrix trauma that's almost invisible because it's so normalized. Um, So there's all of these elements where that's just true. And that, and that one of the ways that shows up, right, is in urgency culture, is in fix-it culture, is in get-it-right culture, mm-hmm. is in um, deal with this moment right now with, you know, taking care of all the shit you can take care of. My, my God, the first week after all this started to really go down, I so got into my saviorism, it isn't even funny for about a week, I was just like, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And it's like, oh, look, there's that thing again. Damn, don't think I'm going to transcend this lifetime. That just comes up in me in these moments is if I work really hard, you know, and I understand it in relationship to the to my own personal experiences, as well as the ways I've been conditioned through gender, race, and class. And, and so all of those things that are fast- that are a disconnection, right? Because that's what trauma is. It's a disconnection from our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the land, the spirit um, that's around us. All of those things are separating from the fact that people are dying right now. And people are always dying right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not minimizing COVID-19 but I'm, again, the difference for some of us for whom, what the fuck? Like, can I introduce you to my normal versus those who are in some way protected from the fact that people yeah. are dying yeah, all the time right now in large groups and numbers, visible to the people they love, invisible in a larger level, is there's just a, a visibility right now. And so... You know, the question I ask myself, I ask people I love, I ask folks who are listening is, you know, how deeply have I brought that in? Like as a truth, Mm. right this second, there's the chance that somebody I love is going to die. This is really random. And uh, uh, about a month ago, um, so all of my lines for as far back as I know, and some of my lines are native to this land, but the majority of my lines are European. And so the ones native to this land have been Catholic for about five or six generations. The ones that are European have been Catholic for 1500 years, Mm -hmm. long ass time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and I'm not, I'm not Catholic, um, but I've been curious. uh, I mean, I was raised all those things, but I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, But I've been curious about traditions that my people would have followed 
in relationship to, you know, like I can't assume that 1500 years of ancestors were all just people who were in some way, um, in some way, uh, patsies for Catholicism that somehow I'm smarter because I know about mm-hmm. Catholic history and make choices. I mean, it's the arrogance, right. Of progressive cultures. Right. And so a month or so ago, I decided to start practicing the memento mori, which is a practice that happens in Lent and during Lent. And it's a daily practice of remembering your own death, which happened before the quarantine hit. I'd made this decision before anything mm-hmm. we knew. And so, and it's a practice that is every day just meditating, remembering that I will die and imagining it, imagining what my life is like when I'm not here in it. Um, And I've been doing it out of a curiosity about how some elements of my ancestors like tried to figure shit out. Um, And then all this happened. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I don't have a, a neat conclusion other than Again, part of really being willing to be in an intimate relationship with death, if we are not already, an intimate relationship, not just survival relationship, this shit happens mm-hmm. and I have to put up with it, mm-hmm. depends, demands us being in an intimate relationship with our life. And uh, and that's still something that I think... A lot of us are figuring out how to do, right? Because <laughs> that's what trauma prevents. Mm. Holds trauma across generations. It is a separation from from life. Yes, from the life force, from the experience of life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really appreciate how you're how you're explaining that, and and in particular, I think that you know, it, in some ways it kind of goes back to, you know, where we started with this story of, you know, the duality or the complexity of, of how you came to know about what it meant to be in a body. You uh, learned that it was about dying and about living at the same time. And, um, I think that, yeah, what you're talking about, I mean, from a personal perspective, I'll say that I, you know, most of the time I think I'm I'm still very much in a survival relationship to an awareness of the inevitability or the my death, you know, and and part of that does come from living with, you know, chronic illnesses, yes. but but I think it's a really helpful distinction you're making between, you know, this, the survival, the way you, you relate to that as saying, oh God, you know, this is, this is what, you know, this too, right? Like this, I have to, I have to accept this rather than kind of being curious in the way that you're kind of indicating that there are kind of other avenues or a multiplicity of ways to more thoroughly and deeply incorporate death or the concept of death, um, into our daily lives, um, mm-hmm. our daily awareness is awareness and, and bring it into our, into our bodies in, in ways that will be different for a lot of 
people depending on, on what they're experiencing. But I think so much of the fear right now, collectively, at least, you know, on a very superficial level is, is right at this, right at this juncture, like not even being able to imagine that death is inevitable. Um, yes. and, and there's certainly plenty of people who have, who are not shocked at all by that, but you know, there, there are people that are kind of being impacted around that right now. And yes. so, um, yeah, I just, I appreciate you kind of, um, bringing in this notion of tenderness around that, but also, you know, um, yeah, there, there are many, like, a, um, a multitude of practices that yes. can help, I guess, help maybe, or encourage, uh, our complexly traumatized bodies to be able to start to incorporate, um, yes. Yeah. Some of that curiosity about death into welcome that in, in some way. It's an, as you were just talking, Asher, thank you for how you just reflected on that. Cause what's really coming up in me is there's a really big part of this that is about coming into physical unflinching relationship to our powerlessness. Mm. And for those of us, I'm somebody who's experienced significant violence when I was younger. A lot of us have experienced significant sexual and physical violence, which often, you know, I know in my own life, one of the ways that I dealt with that was to never, you know, until through healing was able to go deeply into the center of this is actually what it felt like to have no power yes. um, as a part of healing from it. And I think again about the difference for those who driving in their cars, walking in the streets are constantly being reminded that there is a state that is surveilling them and is always looking for ways to prove that they are powerless. That is a different process mm -hmm. than those whose bodies are protected from state surveillance. So it really separate state surveillance as yes. one place. Yes. Um, and then also separate um, how much your body has experienced directed violent, targeted violence or not as another place of separation. All of the, there's so many things that are or different shapes of the protection or distancing from powerlessness as a mm. physical truth. And I think of this moment in which, because of human action, the planet is, species are dying, and the planet itself as a whole is deeply struggling. I think of how abstract concepts like white supremacy, which is not abstract, but still we can stay in the conversation about power and privilege and not in the deep grounded intimacy that this is about bodies, people who, whose dignity is under attack yes. and whose right to claim their own lives and the lives of their kin is under attack. This is powerlessness. So there's this, this, this fear of, you know, which came first how are they woven together? I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But in this moment of physical isolation with different forms of social connection that are um, becoming primary than usual, um, I think I think I think depending on who we are and what our story has been, we are all dancing with those things. Um, we have to be right now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so some folks are feeling right so deeply isolated and I'm having conversations with healers, healing practitioners who are saying, you know, my work is touch based or energetic based. How, you know, but I can't touch anybody. So how is my work meaningful? I'm hearing people be like, mm-hmm. I've been doing <clears throat> movement work for all this time. And yet in this moment, I'm looking and saying, how is the shit that I've been doing even relevant for this moment? There's all of these, these, these expressions of powerlessness yeah. that I'm hearing and seeing. And I think that they are like overlapping the cousin, another version of this conversation about death. And um, mm. again, there's an intimacy and a tenderness and also a very clear headedness that we do not all experience this the same. Our people have not experienced the same. And within this, you know, what happens with the tenderness is to open this space for those who have been part of creating these systems, been creating the situation that we're in or working within to then uh, be a part of repair, reformation, shift, change, revolution, whatever that looks like, transformation. There's clear clearness that comes in in lots of places. But I'm just you know, saying all of that with deep honor, which is what I keep feeling in my body for every person I know and don't know, every person you know and don't know who has been living this story for years and years and years and years. Yes. And and may we not bring another doctrine of discovery to this moment where suddenly it becomes real because those who were not feeling it before do now Mm. and create systems, but based on this discovery mentality as opposed to the shit's old, um, and it's the differences matter as much as this moment of collective sensibility matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the doctrine of discovery, that's a really helpful and poignant way of thinking about some of this. Um, I guess, you know, I, I was going to say, let's shift. Mm. <laughs> let's shift into a different topic, but I don't think this is entirely unrelated. But You know, I would like to hear as we kind of close out this conversation, how, how your own relationship to, I mean, this is a really big question, so you can go wherever you want with it really, but you know, how your relationship to queerness has, is kind of at play for you in this moment. Um, when it comes to some of these, you know, maybe it is, um, being connected to legacies of, you know, communities that are precarious and death and dying, or maybe it's, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what it is, but I think that there's, you know, part of this, this project for me is to certainly not to center queerness as, um, any more significant than, than any other experience. Um, but I think there's something about, um, kind of being queerly bodied, um, being, you know, occupying a particular uh, space in communities, queer communities that, um, that is significant to me. Um, and it offers a significant or offers many different significant lenses for, um, kind of understanding the experiences, like the experiences of suffering that I'm having, uh-huh. um, and how to relate to that. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm 
you, any, wherever that kind of takes you. Mm. Well, I love being queer. We'll start with that. Um, (laughs) So in the early nineties, um, one of the conversations I used to hear a lot about, so I learned this from the, the language I'm about to use from others, and it's very much shaped me, is that, you know, with, you know, movements have multiple fronts that based upon the experiences that we have um, over many generations, there are different wisdoms that come from different experiences that then shape movements, and that the gift of queerness to this broad-based movement is our deep wisdom and practice around family liberation, sexual liberation, and gender liberation. Mm-hmm. And I love the shit out of that. It continues to just uh, happily queer my queer, you know, and in this moment to me, what that means is that as queer people, there's all these um, heteronormative, gender normative sort of uh, uh, unconsciousness, cultural shaping that we've pushed against. And so family liberation, right? It's like, we get to name our own kin. It's not defined yeah. by the household that raised us. And in moments of trying to um, build, understand, deepen collective care, mutual care networks, that lived experience of kin as being an act of claiming, of practice, of who you're in with for the long haul, mm-hmm. of intimacy as something that is Um, consented to and chosen as opposed to hoisted upon you. Um, I think that really informs how we think about collective care. Um, So family liberation, I mean, sexual liberation, it is our right to assert pleasure for God's sakes. And it is vital in the midst of chaos and unknowing. And we know this in terms of how bodies operate, that we also remember pleasure whether it is small as, you know, hearing a bird song outside or you get to be um, isolated with somebody whose body you can touch or just taking the time to taste the food that you're eating. I mean, sexual liberation has been this very broad gift from um, queered spaces. And then gender liberation, that we have the right to name our own bodies, that we have our own dignity in relationship to the story we tell about what our body is, how our body is experienced, how our body is engaging with other bodies. Um, and really, it's the story we tell about the meaning of our body and, um, and, and the way that that story is cultural, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's all of those things, which is what gender is. And so... Um, in these moments of, of becoming, because in the way of, you know, every single day we have the moment to, to change. I mean, change is always available. Thank you, Octavia Butler, God is change. Um, That those are wisdoms to be proud of um, and to listen to and to not assert as another form of surveillance. Um, I, I took a, a fair amount, you know, I'm 57. I took a, or this is my 57th year. I took a fair amount of time coming out because in the eighties, I was living in a city in England that was pretty fiercely lesbian separatist and, mm-hmm. um, and super grateful because I'm not going to, I'm not going to be binary about lesbian separatism. I think there was so many really necessary cultural things that were happening within lesbian separatist spaces. Um, it just was not something that fit well for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to figure out my people. And I've never been somebody, like I'll have my private life, but I don't assert my story until it's a part of a collective moment. Like mm-hmm. otherwise it's my story. And uh, and it was when I 
found queer, it was before the, it was, it was dyke community because it was before we were using the word queer, mm-hmm. but it was a multiracial, multi-class, multi-gender within a pre-understanding of binary, but definitely multi-gender space mm-hmm. that saw itself in relationship to to those things, to sort of being a part of liberatory movements, to being willing to, you know, to be in both the personal as a political space, to unpack, to discern. Um, and that was when I looked and said, oh my God, my people, I've been looking for you for so long. Yes. Um, and began to practice those, those liberations I just named. So mm-hmm. in this moment, and, and with any wisdom, right, we hold lightly when we're with somebody who we don't share culture with and we listen um, and we wait to see whether or not it's applicable for this moment or if they have something very similar for which they use different language. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a, a forced assertion, but it still gets to be a pride. It still gets to be a story that we tell. So, um, you know, I was impacted by and was very, very lightly in um care spaces in relationship to AIDS, very lightly in. I was in the second circle rather than the primary circle. So I was deep friends with people who were in the primary circle. Um, you know, and I appreciate the way that that is also part of, uh, of, of our historical lineage, but I always am very careful about the hour because I wasn't in there um, right, right. washing bodies. I was loving people who were. And mm-hmm. so I was by them but I wasn't one of the folks in the front line in the same way that right now we're not all in the front line um and holding that that discernment is really important as well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely I really appreciate you being here with me I want to um I will certainly let folks know um a little bit more about you and your your work but is there anything that you would like to kind of um point folks to um listeners to in terms of your writing or um projects of of people that you are collaborating with um what i would ask listeners to do is to take a minute and to spend some time if you don't know this already understanding what the health conditions are of the geography where you live mm. separate from COVID-19 mm. how what it, what are the healthcare conditions of your local how are bodies in your community already impacted by by what is happening in the environment by the fact of stress by um, all of those things that compromise immune systems um, what is the care that already exists like more than reading anything, you know, I appreciate you'll direct people. There's such a wealth of information that's showing up everywhere. If anybody hears my voice and has a really specific question that none of this is answering, totally feel free to go to my website and just ask it and I'll see if I can support that specific thing. You know, my biggest request would be in this moment as people are paying attention to safety and wellness mm. is that the practice is to understand who lives where I live. How are they impacted all the time? What are the supports or lack of supports that are there? And how am I, every one of us in our eye, going to remember that for what happens on the after? Um, mm-hmm. that, that would be the request I'd put out. And within there, uh, you know, to continue to deepen and to, and to um, as a constant practice, to interrogate your own ableism, to interrogate, if you don't know those things already, all the reasons why you don't, 
to interrogate if this is a moment of feeling um, powerless and that is new for you to with deep tenderness for yourself interrogate why um, and be willing to talk to people who you trust about this so it doesn't just stay in your head and to share what you learn about where you live um, and Mm. let that shape you as much as this moment is shaping you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I really, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's very wise guidance. So thank you. Mm, Thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, Susan, it's been lovely to talk with you and I um, am really looking forward to, um, to other folks getting to hear this conversation. Um, So I wish you all the best um, you and your community and your family where you are. And, um, thank you. Mm. And Asher, as I said in the beginning, and I'll say it again, (laughs) an honor to be invited. I'll never, ever take that seriously. You just got to let an extrovert think out loud for a while. Thank you. My (laughs) my family who is isolated with me would also like to thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then just also that you also are in a home with a child and family and your yes. own work. And so you are also taking the time to do this service um, and to offer it. So profound gratitude in all those places, hugely. Mm-hmm.